0: If you want the best talent to work for you, I really believe they're going to have to advertise to these freelancers and to these agencies how good of a company and how good of a brand they are to work for. If they do that properly and they get this talent to buy into them, they're going to get the best talent. If they get the best talent, they're going to get the best work. And it's a virtuous cycle that leads to a stronger, more powerful brand.
1: There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not.
0: The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual.
1: Companies today face a global war for talent, and high-skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top freelancers to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Today's guest is Ryan Gill, founder and CEO of Communo. Communo is a talent marketplace for freelancers and agencies in advertising, marketing, and the digital space. Prior to founding Communo, Ryan was a co-founder and president of the Cult Collective, an international engagement agency, and co-founder of The Gathering, a world-class annual summit that brings together some of the top CMOs and leaders from the biggest brands... To the Mountain Resort of Banff, Alberta. It is listed as one of Forbes' must-attend business events. He's the author of two books, the latest being Fix, Break the Addiction That's Killing Brands. Most importantly, he's a husband and father of two little girls. I'm Ryan
0: Gill. I'm uh, the CEO of Communal, a open advertising platform that's uh, reinventing a uh, industry that should have done it a long time ago. I'm a, a 23-year entrepreneur, had some great successes, sold some companies, and had some great failures as well. But I've
1: predominantly, Paul, been in the advertising marketing space for two decades. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about the platform and your views on on the marketing ecosystem in, in industry and how it's changing, especially with what's going on in the economy right now. But first, you're an entrepreneur and you've started your first business at an early age. Tell me about that journey and how it shaped to where you're focused today.
0: So I think you're talking about the golf ball business. I'm talking about the golf ball business. Everyone always asks about that. I'm always happy to tell it because it's, uh, I still look back, it might've been my best business because low overhead, no cost of goods. (laughs) We're going to get another business like that again. But yeah, I, you know, I was 11 or 12 years old. We came from a lower income family. I always loved the idea of golfing, but obviously we couldn't afford it. And so once in a while, my brothers and I would sneak onto the course, hit a few balls. And then obviously we're young, so we lose balls in the the woods. So we go find them and any golfers that they're listening, you know, you find yours, but maybe find a couple others. So I had an idea just sprung on me that, hey, we could sell these golf balls to the golfers coming in. And so that was it. We said, let's just start collecting them, washing them up and putting them in egg cartons. And my mom and dad were amazingly supportive of the idea and they helped drive us around uh, the whole course. And we picked. Uh, balls basically every, usually every Friday after school. And then Saturday and Sunday, we'd set up a little table and sell the golf balls and make great money. And, and it was nice to be able to help my family out. I also felt like money doesn't make you happy, but not having it isn't great either. And so at a young age, I started to have money and I was able to be generous with my friends. And it mostly uh, Paul went to candy. But it, it was my uh, first foray into entrepreneurship. Obviously, I had no clue what that meant at the time. The hustle and the understanding we would set up these silly signs you know a couple blocks away and had good distribution people knew we were there i don't think the pro shop loved us that much to be honest <laughs> but that was my first business and i had my brothers working for me for free which was great
1: you learned a lot about competition in the market and where there was need and what people would pay for where you could provide it's a fun story but it was about team building and, and
0: early now looking back obviously and and uh Making sure we had the best balls and then we had pricing exercises. Now looking back of like, you know, here's ones that are a little beat up, they go at this price, here's the middle of the road ones, and then here's our price anchor ones that are basically the same price as that they are in the store.
1: You're in the advertising and, and marketing field, and that's been one place that in my experience has two views of the best way to provide value to customers and and you own or have been partnered in both of those sides both the traditional advertising agency and now the digital platform tell me how you've seen the marketing space and the advertising space evolve over the past just 10 years
0: it's been almost like a whiplash at least if you're paying attention but the problem for your listeners that are curious of their models and what things that they could adopt in our industry most people aren't paying attention they're used to the billable hour and keeping people full time. And I was one of those people. So I I don't feel bad poking the industry in the eye because I was part of the problem. But about 10 years ago, my business partner and I, who ran a very successful agency and still actually own it to this day, I just don't operate it anymore, made a choice to move from a completely FTE model to saying, hey, could we keep our top line revenue the same or even grow it and grow our bottom line by having more contingent workers? A good friend of mine now, but didn't know him at the time, it started a company called Victor & Spoils. Have you heard of that company? I have, John Windsor. Yeah, John Windsor. So in 2008, he kind of came out with this innovative company. It did well and kind of took the industry by storm, but then came and it kind of went, and people didn't pay attention, but I did. And I believed why I paid attention the most is because the clients liked it. They liked the options and the ability to have almost anything they want, not just what you had on your bench or in your four walls. And so I paid attention. And so Chris and I, my business partner at the time, and still is, said, could we do it? And so we went on a mission. And over the last 10 years, we've reinvented our firm to be almost 40% contingent workers. And uh, we get laughed at a lot by industry folks. And the common line, I'm sure you hear this, is, oh, they don't do anything. They just are thinkers, and that couldn't be further from the truth. We have our core competencies full-time, but all the actual doing work we've uh, outsourced, and uh, that was the genesis and the idea of creating Communo, actually, which is the business now that we're running and that's exploding around North America.
1: One of the things that we were talking about earlier before we got on, on the show was how the the people at your agency reacted when you started a platform for freelancers. And so tell me how the actual talent in the advertising industry thinks about work when you say, hey, look, I'm just going to create an open platform for freelancers.
0: Yeah, let me take you back to the the time we made the announcement that we were going to cut our size of our staff and allow those people to be free. The day we said it to everyone kind of drew a line in the sand that we were going to go to this new open innovation and open talent model. I expected at the beginning to have like, say there was a hundred people there and that we were kind of moving off to this new model. I thought 90% of them would give us the middle finger and walk away and 10% would say, let's do it. And we would start with that 10%. It was actually the opposite to begin with. Now, Before everyone listening gets excited, it didn't end that way. But out of the gate, they were all excited about it. I don't know if you've experienced that, that learning or experiment phase, let's try it. But over time, I was very disappointed and, and to be honest, hurt. A lot of these people worked for me for years before and they either started quitting or going to our competition because they felt we were doing it wrong.
1: And when you say doing it wrong, Ryan, like what was their point of view? When you start talking about the freelance model, and when you start talking about on-demand talent, there's a lot of resistance. There's like, hey, this that's just not the way to do it. It's not done here that way. The more traditional ways are are better quality or the real way to do it. But when you say do it wrong, what was their feedback?
0: Yeah, that we don't have designers. We don't have developers in house like we used to. It was a, a longing for the good old days. And you should never build a company for the past. You should build it for the future. And so they just really thought we needed more talent in house. And I said, listen, we have, we went from having maybe thirty or forty people, talented people, to now four hundred, right, on our bench, and uh, it, it was these are really smart people too, and some of them may be listening today. I don't blame them for it, and to be to be frank, Paul, when I started to hear it more and more, I started to second guess myself, to be honest. But I stayed the course, and I wanted to get through this experiment. We called it our experiment phase, and so we could actually start building. and John Windsor's taught me a lot about that. And um, we stayed the course. It was hard, though. They still, even on the outside in the industry, you know, the the advertising industry is a fairly large industry globally, but it's very small and insular. So I, I heard the rumblings and what people thought about our firm, and um, it was hard at the time to stay the course. And but the numbers didn't lie; <laughs> we were killing it for our clients, and that's what who mattered the most. We were able to do basically anything they asked. We were able to access the crowd very easy, and so. It was difficult. I I don't want to understate how hard it was because it took us a long time to get there. And now with what's happening in the world, I think there's a hastening happening and it's happening faster now being forced into it. But it's been a
1: 10-year journey. When you look at the access to the talent you have now, after 10 years of figuring out the model and understanding how to better serve clients... Do you feel that in this new model, you have a more diverse and deeper bench than you had before? Or are you still struggling to get top talent as it relates to whether it's developers or designers or any of the people that you need in marketing or advertising?
0: So speaking from the firm, I, I still own it, but don't operate. It's not even close. I, I can't be emphatic about that enough. It, it's the amount of talent, which is all we have in the advertising marketing industry are only inventory is people and talent and to think it's in your four walls or in your city or in your town or in your country at all times is just a it's foolish and so it's not even close to answer your question that we have so much more inventory that's what I call it right and I'm not I'm not commoditizing people but that's what we sell we can just say yes to our clients and not yes with the bullshit I'll go find it now with what we went ahead and built My partner and I with Camino, we have over 30,000 and growing by thousands every day at our fingertips with the press of a button.
1: You just can't beat that. One of the things I want to get your perspective on, because you've had 10 years of trying to convince clients and sell against traditional agencies who are like, yeah, Ryan and them are doing something. It's kind of an experiment. It's not real. Open innovation and and talent economy. You know, that's interesting, but we do real work here. What are the objections? you've gotten from clients as you've talked to them and and how do you overcome and, and get them to to understand the capacity and the talent that you have?
0: The first one is trust. I think they have a they have a real concern about can I trust this unknown person? And I think platform businesses are becoming mainstream. And I'm glad to hear that and, and companies like TopTel, which I really admire what they do over there and pioneers that have, have led the way design for trust. But I think the biggest objection is, can I trust these people that I don't know to get the work done? And the ownership for that and the burden of delivering falls on the platform when we're talking specifically about platforms. When it comes to trust, designing for trust is hard, but they shouldn't be trusting, Paul, if I'm hiring you. If I was hiring you as a writer or a designer, I shouldn't be hiring Paul. I should be hiring, in in our case, Camino, right? They're trusting Camino as the brand and as the platform. And so to get that through and deliver, I think you need time, you need to show the stories of success. So that's the first thing is how how can you overcome that distrust with the unknown platform? How, how, How am I going to trust this person to get the job done? The second thing I really feel they struggle with is why should I pay for it? And I'm sure you've seen this a lot. We made a decision right out of the gate. And this is probably contrarian to other platforms you see, but we were pay to play from the very beginning for freelancers and for agencies. That is a different view. And the reason why out of the gate, I did that. I had just finished reading skin in the game by and Taleb. Have you read the book? I haven't, but I'm going to one put it in the show notes and, and two put it on my list to read. To sum it up for everyone. It's a very deep book, so you can't really sum it up, but no skin in the game, no value, given to the platform or to whatever you're buying. No value given to it. You don't take it seriously. You don't take it seriously. Jobs end up being smaller jobs. And you just have this negative cycle of devaluing. And so back to my point. From day one for us, I've held the line on this, and it's been hard. But we've been a revenue-positive business right out of the gate for three years now. Is It costs money to be on our platform. We have a free... Section and uh, you know, this freemium model, but we really don't focus on that. We believe that if you're a serious freelancer, you're willing to pay a little bit of money to get access to large jobs. The average job on our platform right now, I checked this morning, was $47,000 average, and there's $41 million today on the platform. So it's plain true, but it took a long time to get there. So the two things I struggle with the big objections are how can I trust these people? It's not the way it's done here, it's a real psychological shift for them. And I think the burden is on the platform, therefore on us to make sure we build and design for trust. The second thing is cost. Why should I pay for something? And I think it comes from, I have my cousin or brother or I have my bench of freelancers and I I don't have to pay for
1: them, but what happens when you don't? You have a really extensive history in brands. You understand brands, you, you've you worked in branding, especially around cult brands, like how do you build a, a brand that people re- are really attracted to? One of the things I hear often from companies is that, and this goes to FTEs versus any independent worker, whether it's a contractor or a freelancer, is, well... I need to keep people captive because these are the people that are going to protect my brand. Anybody outside is a risk to my brand, and especially when you start talking about marketing and advertising and and I think that a company that's captive or, or believes in in you know captive talent looks at another advertising agency and they go, "Well look, we have captive people too and so those two antibodies are those two organizations are aligned, you know, that we have captive people that can, can create protection from a brand perspective. How do you talk to organizations who think in that way?
0: The First things first is
1: cult brands,
0: I wrote, I wrote a book on it called Fix, a shameless plug, it's on Amazon. The book is about brands, most brands around the world, 99% of them rely on advertising and basically scream really loud and, and, and discount and spend as much as they can. And it's, again, this negative cycle of, if you do that, you're going to get sales, but then you got to hit the needle again of advertising and spike it again. And it's just basically a never-ending treadmill you're on. But the greatest brands in the world, those cult brands that people tattoo on their body, those brands that people buy into, they don't just buy from, they disproportionately spend on advertising. It doesn't mean they don't spend on advertising, but for instance, Harley-Davidson, undeniably a cult brand, we've worked with them. You know, they spend 85% of their advertising dollars, I'm using air quotes, on retention of the customers they already have. They don't overspend on advertising. So to get that kind of devotion and movement, you always have to operate different than everyone else. And it's a very small group. I've been blessed to work with a lot of them. So when I think of those brands, they take care of their customers more than they care about getting new ones. And then those customers become an army an absolute army that no advertising budget could compete with, right? So, so draw, a th- draw a line and a thread to your employer brand. I think that's what you're talking about. We're just adding brands to the platform now. So we started as a closed network just for agencies and freelancers in the advertising, marketing, digital space uh, specifically. Now as we open it up to brands, brands have huge opportunity to have discovery. They're also going to have to continue to operate, especially cult brands that care more about their employees, more than their customers, and then their customers that they already have first over getting new ones. So it's kind of like a waterfall. And so when it comes to now brands using their platform to hire, whether it's agencies or freelancers, a huge pool, I'm excited for the discovery it gives them, but I have a caution for the audience listening when they adopt new models like this. You must act like you do in marketing, that how you treat these freelancers, how you treat these agencies on platforms like ours is going to get around. And that is part of your brand. And if you want the best talent to work for you, I really believe they're going to have to advertise to these freelancers and to these agencies, how good of a company and how good of a brand they are to work for. If they do that properly... And they get this talent to buy into them. They're going to get the best talent. If they get the best talent, they're going to get the best work, and it's a virtuous cycle that leads to a stronger, more powerful brand.
1: Yes, one of the things I often talk about on on this show is talent has a choice. And so, if you're looking to to make this move to lowball a bunch of people or you know save a bunch of costs, then you're not going to attract the best talent. And and I've seen it a number of different times with companies where. Oh they find this amazing talent, they treat it like a cost optimization exercise and the talent says, hey, I'm I'm out. I've also seen it on the other side, to your point, where there is that relationship with amazing talent and that talent feels some loyalty and wants to work with those customers. And it's a very different model because you're not holding anybody captive.
0: We're going to start doing this matching program on our platform where brands and or so our agencies and freelancers are going to start to be able to say, but this is my dream brand to work for and why. And then, you know, that passion economy stuff that you've talked about and how cool is that going to be able to match brands with agencies or talent that really dreamed of working on this brand. And that's the only brand they've ever wanted to work on. Now they better deliver, right? So it does go both ways that this brand that you dreamed of working on, are they who you think they are? Are they great to work for? Because that is a real telling part of the greatest brands in the world. What they talk about measures up with what, the, what it's like to work there as well. And same for freelancers. You can't just get away with it anymore. I will say another thing. We are not letting any brands on our platform that don't, number one, adopt open platforms like ours or that will lowball people. So, and, and this doesn't sound like a lot, but our, our lowest deal, the lowest project you can post is $5,000. So that this sets the tone, I hope that these freelancers don't get taken advantage of because I know that you probably have been fighting for them as well because there's nothing more infuriating to me where, yeah, it's just a cost-cutting exercise. That's not the future I'm trying to build. I know it's not the future you're trying to build or top towel.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing when I see platforms like yours saying, hey, look, I, I also have a choice in companies where I'm going to provide value. I think the thing that you and I and many others in this space believe that, hey, These platforms provide access to some of the world's best talent that are no longer willing to show up into an office. The next place seems to be blurring the lines of organizational charts, right? Letting these these blended teams sort of collaborate. One of the things that you talk about is sort of that blended approach of, of how a brand and an agency and a freelancer could all work together to, to provide amazing outcomes and that it's not going to be binary. Like the platforms aren't going to take over everything and replace full-time employees or replace all agencies. How do you think of that evolution, let's just say, over the next 10 years?
0: It's hastened. If you had asked me that 10-year question two months ago, I would have said it's going to take the whole 10. Now I think it's five. And this shift coming back, work is not going to go back to normal. I think the blurring of the lines, because I don't want to sound in our industry, because I can only speak to that. I don't want to swim in someone else's lane. But in the advertising, marketing, industry, PR, that world, enlightened firms, which I would say are 5%, and I'm being generous, use platforms. And they like this liquid talent, contingent workers, you know, blurring of lines. That leaves 95% of the whole industry that are like, if it's not built here, we have full-time talent. We want them to be in our office or one of our satellite offices. That's 95% of the industry. And I bet you they're operating at like from zero contractors or freelancers or gig workers to like maybe two, 3%. The swing is going to be drastic. I think it's going to be, I want to, I tell people 40 to 50%. I want to say 60%, but I don't want to sound like a heretic, but it's going to happen and it's going to happen fast. So when you say 10 years, I don't think it'll take the full 10, but I would say in the next five years, that blurring of the line you talk about will start getting erased. It's very exciting. I know some of your listeners think it's it's scary. I just encourage them to experiment, learn, dive in. I was one of the early guys. I started a digital agency in the late 90s. This conversation, Paul, this seems so much like those conversations back in the late 90s, early 2000. And it took a while for the internet to infect all areas of business. The platform economy or this blurring of lines with contingent workers is going to come faster.
1: That's my answer. I do this survey every year. I I speak at a conference, uh, Staffing Industry Associates, and it's a pretty large conference for the staffing industry. Each year I ask a question. I say, how many of you in the staffing industry, it's a massive industry covering all sorts of fields, primarily on location work, the satellite offices. And I say, how many of you have experimented or are doing some pilot programs with freelancers? And the first time three years ago, like one person raised their hand. I thought it would be like half the room because I'm excited about this space. The next year, it was 10 people. And in last year, it was maybe 50 people in a, in a fairly large audience. And, and I agree with you. I think if the conference is held you know, this fall, I, I believe that the answer will have accelerated exponentially in my non-scientific experiment of staffing industries trying to adopt.
0: Well, well, let me give you a scientific, let me give you some math just because of what COVID did. Basically, since, since March and April, we've grown with signups and uh, registration center platform have grown 1400%. So talk about exponential, right? And then our deal flow, our GMV, you know, went from 2 million a day or two and a half, which I was happy with, we're really only two or three years old to over 40 million, you know, on the platform today. So we're not going back to normal. It's sad to say, and I feel bad the situation that ushered in, you know, the future of work, <laughs> but net I'm happy. And I think it's going to make a lot of people happy Especially going back to the talent that's been caged up for years, and I was one of those people that kept them in cages. So I apologize, but I'm reformed. There's going to be people, you know this, that want to stay there, and that's—they're not bad people or be—you know. There's going to be people that like that way of work, and there's going to be a huge number, more than half, I think, that just say they're they're gonna—they're gonna realize two things. I'm so talented, and I'm good. I love when confidence rises up in people. I'm good at what I do in my craft that I can have a portfolio career and work for lots of people and actually be a career like 10, 20 years. And because of the proliferation of platforms like TopTal, who I have huge respect for, or Communo, or those types of platforms, now they have the tools to go do that, but they couldn't before. And they, you know, they'd have to be scrambling and racing for work. And so I think with the proliferation of platforms and hopefully some super packs between platforms to set prices and help take care of the freelancers, because I think that's our duty. That is our, now, I call it the inventory. It's our duty as platform leaders and owners. If you're out there listening and you're a platform leader, we have to take care of the talent and make sure they get compensated properly. But it's going to usher in this new world. Like I guys, I'm standing, you know, I'll listen to this maybe in a year or two, but it's happening right now. So back to that math, I think when you go to that seminar or that conference and speak, I really, I'll take a guess that it will be like 90% of people will raise their hand and say they're at least exploring it.
1: Yours was a 10-year journey. Mine's been a five or, or six-year journey really to understand not only the opportunity, not only the challenges, but I think you said something powerful like the responsibility because this is disruptive. It, it is change and we have a responsibility to think about how, one, how to, to provide value to clients, but also on, on the talent side. I always advocate leaders have a responsibility and just like you did when you were running your agency to understand the future, to provide opportunity for people going forward, I I think in my experience, there's a lot of executives who are paid to not experiment, you know, not have a growth mindset, not understand risk and evolve. And they're putting large teams of people at risk when things drastically change. It's extremely risky. I agree with you.
0: And you nailed on something that I want to touch on. My vision for Camino, and I think your vision for what you guys are doing at TopTel probably is similar, but it, my vision is very simple. Let's enable economic options for every person in business center industry and leave no one behind. We've came so far as a culture and as a, I think as a world that's become more united, but it's still disproportionate and it doesn't have to be. We have tools, we have visionaries, we have people that can make that happen. Now everyone's not going to win. You know, that. It's, I still believe in capitalism and, but I think when people hear that vision from me, they think it's a hit piece on big. You didn't hear me say that. I want to enable economic options for every person in business and in industry, leaving no one behind. Now, people will choose to adopt or not. And there's the stories of Blockbuster and Columbia House and Chapters, right? We all know that journey. And sadly, like you said, some people are paid to defend against innovation. And I don't think they on purpose think that way, but as we do that, you know, enable those options for everyone. It's so exciting for me because we're going to create an open, fully integrated industry platform, not just for agencies, freelancers, brands, but we're bringing in media, schools. That's why it's not, our platform is not just a job and get, get work, give work platform. I'm trying to build a fully open advertising platform where all players are represented.
1: And so it's, uh, that whole journey is going to take a long time. You talk about Blockbuster, but like the idea that these corporate jobs or big jobs are safe is just not completely true anymore. I mean, just look at what's happening right now and you look at airlines or it, the number of companies that are being impacted. And I know there are people and I've, I've talked to even people in my own neighborhood who were, have been impacted at really big brands, at jobs that they thought were sustainable careers. And when I looked at the future, and, and one of the reasons I decided to take on a more portfolio view of, of my career was I didn't believe that I would be able to sustain my relevancy and value over time by being held captive, whether it was reorganizations or layoffs or all the different things that, that might happen.
0: That's so exciting. I don't know if you have kids. Do you have kids? I do. I have two little girls. Like, I think when they get into the workforce, we were perpetrators of this. So we, you know, retention of staff, keep people in the company forever. Again, I don't think that's inherently bad, but I think choice is important. And so we were like, Oh, you know, look at these millennials. They can't stay at a job forever. And I was one of those people. I probably wrote blogs on it. You could probably go embarrass me, but I've changed my mind. And when they get into the workforce, they're 100% going to have choice to have a portfolio career. And how exciting is that? You know, I want to be a teacher for a while, and then I want to get into advertising, and then I want to get into law. The the mobility of careers is so exciting. And I think for me personally, I don't know if your listeners are out there, we need to enable that future for our kids and for the youth coming up. And they're not gonna accept anything less. And platforms are the only way. They are the pipes that make that happen. We're gonna be big companies. I know we're smaller and we people are Ignoring us right now, we're going to be big companies and we have a huge responsibility. I hope that's what I call it a super pack. I hope a bunch of us platforms get together and, and write our own history of just taking care of the individual. Because if we take care of the individual, the individual will take care of the companies and the companies will take care of the deals getting done on our platforms. But if we don't and allow it just to be a race
1: to the bottom, it'll self destruct. And one of the reasons I made the jump in my career, not only for my own relevancy, was because my father as most parents do provide career and life guidance based on their experience because they want the best for their children. And I looked in the future and I said, wow, if I continue on this journey, I won't understand how to provide them relevant advice to your point to be successful. I would give them the same advice my father gave me, which was great advice at the time. You know, find a big brand company, provide the value, show up every day, work for a good manager, like all that, that advice And the world will be radically different for, for our daughters. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about this space.
0: When it comes to building platforms, I know you guys do this, but provide economy for people on your platform, but more importantly, provide connection and community. It's a really soft word and it can get a bad rap. WeWork took a a beating for this this year, but I don't think they were wrong in what they were trying to do at an altruistic level. Um, So making sure that you build true community and connectedness, not just connections, but true connectedness and then education and upskilling or, you know, cross industry. That's why I hope a lot of platforms connect where if people want to move, let's just make mobility and moving around the economy easy because I just hear you saying, Paul, which I love, you might not want to work for Microsoft for the rest of your life. That doesn't make Microsoft bad or you bad. It's just your choice. And now you're able to do it. How exciting is that? That's, that's the opposite of what you were talking about earlier. You know, this risky thing of being at a company forever and what happened, like it gives opportunity and options. And I, having options in life and in your career is the ultimate confidence booster for individuals. And so be brave out there. If people are listening that you're curious about models Just be curious, learn, and then build fast. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Because I think scaling happens. (laughs) You don't have to to force scale. It'll just happen. But
1: I think the big thing is for people to be courageous and try things. Ryan, thank you so much for your perspective and time today. If someone out there is interested in Camino or... The books, of course, will have all these links. But what's the best way to get in touch with you if if someone wants to to pick your brain about how to adopt these models or start this process of change? You find me on Instagram at, at Ryan Gill Shares,
0: Ryan Gill on LinkedIn, and then I think it's at Ryan Gill Shares on Twitter as well. But I put out content six days a week on this topic for those that will listen, and uh, I really do try to just tell the truth and the story of what's going on, good and bad, and. It's a, like, you know, Paul, you know more than me, but it's a messy road, uh, but it's worthwhile.
1: Ryan, thank you so much. Take care and, and we'll, we'll continue this conversation in a couple of years so we can replay it and see what happened. My pleasure. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Talent Economy.